Hey folks, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Mason. Today's episode is so fascinating because Fiona is a vegan and has been since she was three years old. She just had this conviction in her heart that she couldn't shake. And, you know, personally, I'm not vegan, but I highly respect anyone who has a conviction to make this world a better place and they stick to it and they follow it. And this interview was unexpectedly one of the most impactful I'd ever had. I I just walked, I remember just my mouth kind of being dropped, my jaw being dropped the rest of the day. And I was telling my wife about it at dinner that night. And Fiona, I think just the energy she has, the fire she brings to everything she does and and sticking to this one goal for her entire life is what made me so, uh, moved me, I guess, so much about this episode. And uh, I'm I'm not going to lie, Fiona really got me thinking about my own choices with food, uh, but also about what it means to have convictions about something and have a fire in you about something you want to see change in the world and being that change. I just have never talked to someone with so much energy and had so much to do and it was doing it and just figuring it out and making it happen. Fiona is someone that doesn't come up with excuses that figures out a way and relentlessly pursues the things that she wants to do to make this world better. And what I love about it, it's not a selfish pursuit. It's not um, about her and her own achievements, but using what she can do with her body to promote these messages that she cares about and these things that she cares about. So, you know, back in the day, you know, vegans were viewed as weaker athletes and she wanted to fight against that as hard and as swiftly as possible. And not only began entering and completing ultra marathons, but winning them so much so that she became one of the greatest ultra runners uh, ever and to this day completes these unbelievable races and challenges and has even had documentaries, recent documentaries made about her most recently, um, Running for Good, an amazing documentary produced by the same director and producer from uh, Babe, the, the movie about the pig, if you remember that, uh, James Cromwell. And and so uh, if you want to check that out, links are in the show notes, but also if you want to help out her animal sanctuary that she's been running for like 30 years, Tower Hill Stables Animal Sanctuary that she's been managing and rescuing animals. And and, and I just want to say it, it is so cool to see somebody making a difference in the world uh, in a place that, you know, they feel so strongly about. So many of us sit around and talk about it and talk about it, everything from talking about the adventures we're going to do, talking about what we want to see different. But I have the utmost respect for people who actually take action. Whether I believe or or, or, or really um, agree with them or not, I'm just blown away by, by Fiona's uh, commitment. And so let's all support her by listening to this. And if you feel led to help in any way, all the links are in the show notes. And please check out her documentary. It's amazing. Um, and follow along. So let's go ahead and jump in. Hey folks, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. Today is going to be, this is a special conversation. I am so excited to talk to Fiona. You heard a little bit about her story or quite quite a bit about her story in the intro uh, that we record after this, but I'm so excited to welcome her on the podcast now. Fiona, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's exciting to be here. You were telling me that uh, about the animals right before this. Uh, where are you located? Where is your animal sanctuary? And, and, and is that, I mean, I know that's home, but is that where you are right now? 
that's where I am right now and that's where I spend most of my time. It's in the UK, about 60 miles outside of London on a little peninsula overlooking an estuary and it's a wonderful place. Now, did you grow up there or around there? How did you end up in that that spot specifically? No, I grew up at the other end of the country, actually, in uh, Derbyshire. I kind of ended up by, by default down here. It's everything in my life connects. It's hard to pull out one thing and randomly say, I came and I ended up here for this reason, because it's been like a domino effect. One thing's led to another. People may or may not be aware of any of my backstory, but um, I had an orthopedic problem when I was a teenager, which prevented me from going to school. I ended up having to go to a college in Oxford to learn a kind of skill. That skill, believe it or not, people are absolutely shocked to learn. that Another another phase in my life, I was um, a PA secretary to some quite high-profile people, actually, in London. I used to work in merchant banking. So I went to college in Oxford. I kind of moved down the country uh, for a year to study. And then I ended up working in London. Absolutely hated working in London. So gradually, I ended up moving further and further and further out of London. And I ended up here in Bradwell-on-Sea. And that's how I got here. There's part of that you just mentioned. I did not know about the time in London as a PA and whatnot. So many chapters to your life. Was Tower Hill Stables uh, Animal Sanctuary already going? Or is that something that, that you got moving? How, how did that come about? Because you mentioned that, you know, that's almost 30 years ago now. I reluctantly worked in London to earn a living, but I mean, I was probably the world's worst secretary <laughs> because I just wasn't made to be a secretary. You know, I'm not highly coiffured. I don't own any makeup, you know, but I was very lucky in that my bosses were all very, very understanding with me. They knew my heart lay elsewhere and that other place was always with animals. So when I moved to London, I started to kind of do rescue on a very, very small scale. I had a, had my own house and I kind kind of did the, you know, chickens and dogs and cats on the domestic in, in, in that house. And I rescued horses and kept them at a farm. That was the reason the sanctuary was started. I used to cycle to work. It was it kept getting a further and further distance the more and more I kept, you know, um, moving out and further to London. And my horses were at a farm. I used to cycle and see them in the morning, go into work, come home and see them in the evening. And they were all rescued horses, obviously. And one day I, I, I cycled home, I called my little herd and seven of them came and one didn't. And the one that didn't come was a, an ex-race horse that I'd been rehabilitating for a couple of years called Oscar. And I went to look for him and found him in the field, literally impaled on a fence. It was absolutely horrendous. Called the vet, you know, I had to get him get him immediately to the vet. He was there for 13 weeks. And it was that was the pivotal thing that made me decide I can no longer carry on with this model, entrusting my precious family to people that don't share my beliefs. Because actually I found out that the reason Oscar had become impaled on the fence was that the farmer, in his infinite wisdom, had allowed people in my absence to go into my horse's field and shoot rabbits. Oscar was a racehorse. He was kind of very, very highly strung. It had obviously frightened him, the gunshots, and he bolted and bolted into the fence. And it was at that point that I thought, you know, can't do this anymore. And my family completely made this massive, monumental push to buy a property with some land, which was a huge, immense, immense 
challenge for us. We, I don't come from some massively bohemian, wealthy background or anything like that. You know, my dad was in the mining industry. My mother was actually a pianist, but then her dream was to become a nurse. And she did that in later life. So it was a real struggle. And I always tell a story that my whole family chipped into this dream when, when we knew it could possibly become a reality, even to the point where my great aunt Nancy, she, when she was told that there was a chance Fiona might be able to get somewhere for the animals to go and live with her, she actually went off, to, she was 98 years old, she went off to her, her bed and under the mattress she got a sock out and it was filled with £1,000, which was her funeral money. And she actually said, give this to Fiona and I'll just have to make sure I don't die anytime soon. So you can see it was literally, my mum was selling her engagement ring, she sold her piano, Every, everything we had went in to, to, to get into the original site for Tower Hill Stables in a desperate kind of ditch attempt to find somewhere safe for the animals that I could care for them on my terms. And this was all in the early 90s? This was actually in 1995-6. Yeah, 1996. Yeah. Tell me about, I mean, so this was clearly a passion of yours. And I, and we'll get to the like adventure sports stuff in, in a bit. This is just all laying the foundation. It sounds like your just desire to protect these animals was contagious to your family. Like, where were you... It, it obviously must have been something you were always talking about to get them so excited. What do you think uh, it was about this issue that got the people around you excited? Were they initially, I don't know, apprehensive about supporting you? Or is this, hey, this is what Fiona is all about. We are going to support her. Honestly, my family, I'll have to backtrack a bit. My family have known that Fiona is all about animals. Fiona and the animals, there's no separating point between my love of animals and, and Fiona. There never has been. So I went vegetarian when I was three years old. Yeah. And was that a personal choice? Yes. Yes. That was absolutely, absolute refusal. Why? didn't like it. I can't actually remember the concept, but my mum can just remember this absolute refusal. I don't know whether it was the taste, the concept, the texture, absolute no. And as I actually uh, progressed in years, when I became sort of five, six years old, mum said I was asking the most bizarre questions for a child that age. And it was strange because I've got a sister and Alison, my sister, would always be considered much more academically clever than me. I was always very shy, kind of introvert, but different. I was very much different to my sister. I started to ask what my mum said now, looking back on it in reflection, were monumentally kind of, I don't know, bizarre questions for a six-year-old to be asking back in the 1970s, you know, about the sourcing of animal products and the exploitation and why do they, why do we take from the animals? And that was so, at six years old, I went vegan. And when I say I went vegan, I didn't know the word vegan and I didn't know the word vegetarian. I just understood the concept of not harming any, anything or anyone that I loved. And I loved animals. It was, it was no more kind of natural to me to eat a chicken than it literally was to eat my sister, you know, because, and that's honestly the way I've, I, I've always felt. Mum has always supported me. Mum just supports me blindly. The family, a lot less so. And actually, when I refer to the fact that I went into hospital, 
as a teenager for multiple orthopaedic surgeries. Mum had just gone nursing and she was a student nurse at the time. And um, she was accused of child abuse. And my veganism was aligned to anorexia or an eating disorder at that time. It was so uh, incomprehensible back in the 1980s to the uh, the medical profession that you could manage without meat and dairy products um so it was a it was a tough tough time for her um, and mum always said the real abuse would be if I did not allow Fiona to follow her rightful path in life mum always stuck by me dad less so grandparents less so but when I talked about my um great aunt Nancy she I think she understood back then she understood she really I was close to her she was always out in nature um she uh, grew her own vegetables she used to live on a farm she uh, she got it and she supported me so my family by the time I was kind of in my late 20s they knew that the dream had always been to have somewhere that I could keep animals and be with them at uh, you know 24/7 we never thought it would become a reality as i say as I think, you know, it was the same in the States, to own a property with, with land is a big dream. To own a property now is a very, very, very big dream. Um, and I, I still don't, I sometimes have to pinch myself that it ever became a reality. So the first step in my love of animals was obviously to not be party to any exploitation or abuse of them, either to eat them or buy products which come from them. Then the next phase was obviously the dream to be able to nurture them and care for them in a sanctuary environment. But I will say when I got Tower Hill Stables, this place with land, I didn't set it up as a sanctuary per se. I set it up as a place of sanctuary for the animals that I'd already rescued. So in the time that Oscar went to the vet, those 13 weeks, that was the time we were actually going through the motions of of buying that property. And I was so it was on about two days before Oscar was deemed well enough to come home from the vet that I actually took the keys to Tower Hill and he came home there and lived for another three years very happily there. So that's how the sanctuary came about. That's how my family, you know, have always understood that this is very much, it's the lifeblood of me. Animals and caring for them and nurturing them has been the lifeblood of me. Then when it moved on to the running, mum just didn't get that, but she, she <laughs> stuck with it. She did not get with, get why I was doing it at all but she stuck with it because um if listeners are interested and I always say I'm not I'm not a a conventional runner I don't consider myself a talented runner I think that the one thing that if I've got any talent it's an absolute dug-in determination to get where I want to go I'm very highly motivated but other than that I realize that I'm going to have to work very very hard to achieve anything because naturally you know, there's no talent there. And actually, when I had all these surgeries back in my teenage years, I was actually told that I would never walk properly, let alone be able to run because I was a very, very sporty teenager. You know, I I was into everything, netball, anything, cross country, anything. I I used to do a lot of sport. And that was one of the, when I had my kneecap removed, the doctors did say, that's going to be a problem for you. And you were 17 at the time. Yeah, that's when I took to cycling. I did a lot of cycling because that's low impact, continuous motion. So when I moved to Oxford, and Oxford is a big cycling place, I kind of took to to doing a lot of cycling. And I used to 
race bikes. You know, that was my thing. I used to race push bikes. Um, but when I got the sanctuary, um, I decided that, you know, obviously I didn't have the hours to then commit to any, any all the money actually to commit to any sport seriously. So I was just going to stay at the sanctuary and look after the animals. And I also did kind of a semi-living, worked as a retained firefighter. Well, Fiona, I, I've got to ask, where does this drive, this motivation, this passion come from? It sounds like it was just in you, but I mean, are your parents like this, siblings like this? I mean, I don't even know if you can share how do you, because I, I feel like this, I can hear it. I can just hear it. I can tell when researching you, I can tell talking to you, it just doesn't seem to stop. You could apply this same energy to anything in life. Where does it come from? For you. Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that help make this show possible. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. A deep rooted desire, honestly, to help others. When the suffering stops, I'll stop. Or when I drop, I'll stop. But when there's so much injustice out there on all levels, I'll keep going because I'm lucky. The situation has always seemed hopeless for the animals, but I understand that I'm lucky to live in a situation where I'm not helpless to do something. And it's that desire to make a difference, to make a positive difference on this planet that that drives me. It truly is. I, I mean, for instance, the reason that I started running, as I had the sanctuary for two or three years, and obviously... When you've got your own land, you can take in more than horses. You can rescue cattle. You can rescue sheep. You can rescue goats. You can rescue pigs. pigs. But I realized then that, hey, you know, I can take in 400 animals. I can take in 4,000. But, you know, the abuse is in the billions. I can't help those animals. What what can I do? What You know, and I'd been sporty, you know, in, in the past, and I'd done a lot of cycling. I'm not academically, I would say, brilliant at all. So what, hey, how can I... Or political, you know, political might not be the way you go, changing legislation, yeah. you know, that, that could be one way someone goes, but... Yeah, to be honest with you, back back then, before social media, before computers, before Googling things, it was not that easy. You got to use the mainstream media. You got to get them on your side. And you, if to do that, you got to do something very good, something very bad, or something very kind of sensational or, you know, yeah. so, and I, you know, so I was kind of thinking, well, what can I do? And at the time, in the UK, the big ticket within sport, especially women's sport, which didn't tend to be that high profile and still probably isn't compared to men's sport, was marathon running. Paula Radcliffe had done this flamboyantly tough event, the marathon. And it was just my idea, you know, it got all the hashtags kind of attached to it. It's, you know, brutal, both mentally and physically, the endurance, you know, you've got to have it all going on to be able to do. And I just thought if I could compete in and complete, hopefully, a marathon, it's kind of, you know, absolutely rubber stamping that as a vegan, as a a long-term vegan, it is not prohibitive to doing the most extreme of events. So if I can do a marathon as a long-term plant-based person, it's certainly not going to be prohibitive to anyone just going, considering this lifestyle for normal day-to-day activities. At the time, the vegan lifestyle, I mean, it was considered weak or weekly or sickly. Like people... And I think there still is that to a degree, but I think there's been tons of progress. 
Yeah. Uh, my, I mean, heck, my dad has always said that. You know, you just, you have to, he, he, he firmly believes. I don't know if he still does. I haven't talked to him about it in a while. And, and I would just tell him, I'm like, dad, do you, like, are you out in the world? Like, there's tons of people that don't consume yeah. any animal products that are bodybuilders, that are the fittest people in the world, that are winning at the highest level of every sport. That's not a, that's not a problem anymore. But at the time, there was. It was a problem. Oh, at the time, it was a massive problem. Two decades ago, you're talking, yeah. you know, it was just unheard of. And in fact, people have, you know, they asked me for advice, training advice. I'll always share, but I have to share very honestly. I've never had a coach, never had any physio. I've never had any running injuries, I'll say that. But the reason I never had a coach was when I started to kind of play around with the idea of running, this is before you could Google search, how do I run a marathon? It was literally by trial and error. It was a big trial and there were an awful lot of errors. I can tell you that, still are. But it was literally just going out, seeing if you could jog, open it to a run. How far can I run? You know, this kind of thing. It was, it was, there was no science behind my running. I entered a few local events, you know, short distance events began to kind of win them and, you know, get decent times. And, you know, I, I thought, well, I don't really know what I'm doing here. Uh, perhaps I could get a coach. Somebody would help me. And initially, people were very, very interested in kind of, you know, you've obviously got some ability there. You know, uh, hang on a minute. You're plant-based. You're never going to be able to do what you want to do on a plant-based diet. Well, the plant-based, the veganism was not up for negotiation. That was the whole reason I was out there in the first place. So I had to kind of wing it and go it alone. And yeah, it's, it's, it's been kind of tough. But having said that, I think two decades on and I'm still running and I'm still running well. I still got championships started on the marathon if I want to. I still win races. I think that it's taught me a lot about myself and I know how to get the best out of myself. I know how to dig deep. I know how to rely on myself. And I've got a lot of structure to my training. I know what I'm capable of because I think to be the best you can be, you've got to know and accept and embrace your weaknesses and work on them. And that I, I'm very, very able to do that. So even to this day, I don't, I mean, I, I only run with a basic watch. I don't have Strava. I don't have pulse monitors. I don't have pace checkers. It's all in my head. And I've always said, I feel no need for any of those things personally, because you as a human being, well, I'm not sure if it's still the case, but you, you've got probably got the most sophisticated computer about your person i.e. your brain, if you learn to use it. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I just, my running career has been, it's been bizarre when I look back on it. I mean, I started literally running around the Denji Peninsula, uh, which is not exactly twinned with New York. You know, I mean, it's literally never, ever used to see anybody out running. It's a big farming community. I mean, it, people just look, used to look at me like I was a freak. <laughs> to standing on the start line, with the world's greatest marathons in the biggest starts on in the world. I don't know how I got there in, in literally a very, very short space of time. From my first marathon, I mean, I, I, I was quoting Paula Radcliffe a couple of years previous, and then somebody said to me, you do realise you're going to be standing on the start line on the championship, on the, on the elite start of the ladies' marathon at London next to Paula Radcliffe. You do realise you've qualified for that. And it was kind of, wow, um, yeah, I suppose I have. It was at that point 
me and another guy, Peter Simpson, we decided that we were going to start a dedicated vegan running club. And that's when we started Vegan Runners back in 2004 with the idea that uh, it was free exposure for the word vegan in a positive setting that had probably never, it was completely unique. It was completely new. So obviously as the cameras, you know, go go down the start lines of these elite marathons and you've got 50,000 runners behind you, people are making that subliminal connection. Hang on, vegan out front, that's got to send them a message that I could never go around and tell everyone, excuse me, I'm vegan, excuse me, I'm vegan. So it just, it was free advertising. But the reason we started a, a, a you know, a UK affiliated running club was that a lot of people don't realise that on the elite starts of the, of the major marathons, you're not allowed to just have anything emblazoned across your shirt. It's got to be an affiliated running club or nothing at all, because obviously there's a lot of competition over a, you know, um, advertising. So they even go around and measure with celluloid the lettering on your club vest that you're not getting a little bit too much exposure. So yeah, that's that's when we I started vegan vegan runners back with Peter back in 2004 with the pure uh, directive of promoting the word vegan to a mass audience in a positive way and through a sporting forum. It is uh, just an amazing concept to identify running as a, something you can do, also something, you know, good good for you, a, a way to prove the strength of a vegan. Did you feel pressure to be out front, to be in the lead and to not, to not basically fail with these g- giant challenges to kind of, to, to not reinforce the stereotype? I didn't want to let the animals down. I didn't want to let veganism down. I didn't want to let everything I believe in down. That's it's always been a massive, massive pressure. I mean, for you know, for, for runners out there, they'll know. I mean, my, I say my running career was was strange. So okay, um, <laughs> I to start with, I just did two marathons a year, basically focused on the world's major marathons. Two reasons: I don't like to be away from the sanctuary for very long. Um, So it was literally one weekend, twice a year, you go away and you deliver. The rest of the time you you train for it. I've got no peer group. I don't train on a track for speed because my knee is too bad to run the bends. I don't like to do a lot of multiple action. I, I can kind of run in a straight line, okay, on a flat road. That's fine. But when I start diversifying a little bit, I can dislocate it very, very easily. So I used to just hole away for probably four month cycles, probably have a month off after a race and train for one Sunday morning in autumn and one Sunday morning in in spring. And then the pressure was on to deliver on that day. Uh, And it's it's tough because, you you know, uh, when you set off in a marathon, you're setting off at the pace you want to be able to maintain for 26.2 miles. You do not want to blow at 25 miles and you don't want to feel you've got anything left and you could have run on it to 27 miles. And it's a science to be able to do that. And you're pivoting all your hopes and dreams for achieving for the animals on the weather being good, you not being ill, you not being injured. And just getting out there and been blessed to be able to do that. The big testament to the plant-based diet is the amount of training you can do to do that. I'm not massively talented. Other people might be able to run a 238 marathon. That's my PB on um, 
on like literally a little bit of training. I couldn't. I'd got to run 100 miles a week. I'd got to really hit the sessions. I always felt massive pressure. to. I still do to a certain extent because I've been very, very well aware over the years that I wasn't getting maximum publicity for veganism and I found it quite strange. But I always felt that if I didn't achieve that's probably when people would say, oh, well, it's down to the fact she's vegan. Oh, she's failed because of, you know, a, a diet. Uh, it got her in the end kind of thing. So, yeah, I, I started off. But I, uh, oh, and another thing that I was always very good about the, the world's major marathons like Berlin, Amsterdam, London. I would get a, a kind of an email through from somebody like Mark Mild at Berlin or Jos Hermans in uh, Amsterdam. And he'd say, come to my race. If you'll come to my race, we'll pay your expenses. So it was free. I could go to these races for free. They'd, I'd be invited to go as a runner. And, you know, looking back, I've had some monumental experiences. I remember back in 2005, I don't particularly look like a runner. Uh, certainly not, uh, if, I, if anything, in more of a spinter. I'm very muscular up top because obviously I, I live a very, very tough life and I have to be strong to care for the animals female firefighter it's not an easy kind of path to tread so I arrived in um, Amsterdam I'd been invited by Jos to go and, and run on the elite start of Amsterdam and um, it was my big moment because you know there, there isn't flamboyant amounts of money or uh, the kind of accolades people think in marathon running but the big one was that I was on the elite start with my hero Haile Gabriselassi and I remember turning up there and uh, at the hotel, and I was so excited to go everywhere with my mom. And, you know, there were the African runners there, you know, the people you idolize, you know, they'd all got their coaches, they'd all got the physios. I've just got my mom and uh, Percy <laughs> Bear, obviously. And um, I went to collect my number. And Yoss had sent me an email, said, you know, you don't obviously go to the Olympic Stadium or the big expo, you just get your number at the, ho- at the elite hotel. And I walked down to collect my number, and I said, I'm here for, here for my running number. And the guy just looked up to one look at me and said, oh, sign-ons at the uh, Olympic Stadium. And I kind of thought, oh, no, have I made this horrible mistake and I put myself in a bracket that I don't belong in? You know? And I said, oh, no, I've had an email from Jos Herman and I read it, you know, I had a look at it and he said, what, you're on the elite start? And I said, oh, yes, I am. Yeah, I'm so excited. And um, he said, you know, what, what, what are your times, what are your credentials? And I told him and he said, you know, if you were really ran well, you could probably get in the top 15 top 12 of this race and I, I said do you reckon and he said yeah p- possibly and I came eighth and that was you know a big result for me to be on a gold standard marathon elite star and I was I think I was the first non-African runner home so it was it was an amazing amazing adventure and then you know Harley Gabrielassi walked in and you know I, I was able to spend the evening with him because he was waiting to do an interview and he imparted such a lot of knowledge to me in such a humble way um he actually said to me you know we are very similar in our running and I thought no you're not you've got 45 minutes on the road from me you know but he said no you know we he was doing it for a reason he'd won the double olympic 10,000 he didn't need to carry on running but he'd moved up to the marathon and a lot of his motivation was the fact that so many people in Ethiopia literally relied on him with his businesses he was employing a lot of people he felt the pressure to deliver for them in the way that I was kind of feeling pressure to deliver for the animals so it was kind of bizarre you know literally I was the most amateur of amateur runners just running around the house looking for something which resembled a pair of socks to train. And then you get on a plane and you get off the plane and suddenly 
you're an elite marathon runner with all the kind of privileges that you know affords it's bizarre I used to have to pinch myself you know uh, you know in Berlin you know you'd be in you know in the elite enclosure and these elite enclosures people think well what are they like well they're obviously not that great but you get access to a portaloo you know that sort of thing <laughs> the things that you don't care you know and it's just just been a bizarre adventure but after a couple of years two three probably four years of like delivering you know the results top 20 in London you know big results age group win and top I think top 15 in Berlin so there's nothing more I could do in straight road running and it was not garnering the attention I wanted it to for the veganism um yeah I was getting written about you know that I ran an animal sanctuary that I was a firefighter you know that but not the veganism that just didn't seem to be getting getting the notoriety and, and the exposure I wanted it to. So I figured, okay, then I'm going to change my tack a bit or I'm not going to carry on running because obviously to run 100 miles a week, to do well in road marathons, I, I, I you know, I was three days a week, I was double sessioning, you know, I was doing a lot of speed work, uh, doing a lot of miles, you know, you know, I, I kind of thought, what can I do? How can I change this up a little bit? And then I just looked to go and win marathons, you know, move down a grade in actual event and go and win, break course records, which I did. Still, you know, I was, you know, I, I remember one, in, I was voted Inspirational Woman of the Year by a major newspaper in the UK, the Daily Mail. And I remember my mum running off to buy all the copies like mums do. And she brought it home and, oh, look, you know, big pictures of you and all this kind of thing. And I took one look at it. And I said, but they haven't mentioned the fact that I'm the reason I'm out there in the first place. They haven't really focused on the veganism. This is a complete disaster. I'm not interested in Fiona Oaks, the person, Fiona Oaks, the runner. I'm interested in Fiona Oaks, the vegan runner. That's why I'm out there in the first place. So at that point, a guy I know uh, said, look, Fiona, I've got an idea. And this idea was bizarre. I call Paul a friend. I'm not sure he, he can be classed as a friend if he's making suggestions like this, because if, if that's what your friends suggest you do, what do your enemies tell you to do? But he said, why don't you do the marathon, the Sable? That's, that's kind of got the hashtag of toughest foot race on the planet. If you do that and you complete that, that's surely got a, you know, absolute proof positive of what you're trying to achieve with your running and I didn't kind of I, I kind of entered the race and I didn't think too much about it actually until fairly near the race and then I kind of looked at what it actually entailed and I thought "Ooh, <laughs> this looks really really tough this does look tough but hey I'm a 238 marathoner so I, I've got this I've absolutely got this and yeah, it is a brutal race for somebody who's just a complete novice in ultra running. But what made it worse for me is the first time I did it back in 2012, the week before the race, I fractured two toes on my right foot. I was at the sanctuary. Um, one of the elderly racehorses had gone down. She had not been able to get up on her own. So I literally put ropes around her and tried to drag her to her feet myself, which I did do. But she was kind of stumbling around when she got up and she stood on my foot charity the horse she was okay but I'd got this like battered foot and it was a question of do I go or do I stay at home and wonder if it would have been possible so I kept it to myself obviously my doctor knew my family knew and I went off and I attempted the toughest foot race on the planet with two fractured toes and anybody who's obviously into the ultra running especially the desert running will know 
that what you don't want is bad feet in those races because generally speaking, I think 10 years ago, especially before there was so much information online on how to cope with MDS or any any ultra race, uh, your feet get mashed anyway. And in the desert, your feet swell. I didn't realize, you know, what I just about crammed my right foot into the shoes which I bought, which I'd done, done the right thing. I bought them half a size or a size too big, but my foot was obviously swollen because it was very bruised and battered. And um, I remember that the time we got to the long stage, which I think was about 80 or 90k that year, my foot was so torn to pieces. You could see the bone sticking out my little toe. No. Oh, yeah. Um, and it was, I didn't have any, I didn't show the race doctors because I thought, uh, my only thought was, oh no, they'll pull me out the race. So I must continue on with gaffer tape <laughs> around my feet, you know. But I got through it and I didn't finish too badly placed. And it absolutely brought me alive. I loved it. I loved the combination of the extreme challenge, being out there, just in the wilderness, being exposed to nature, being exposed to yourself, you versus you across the desert. And I said, you know, if there's any dream, I want to go back and I want to hit it hard without anything being broken, if possible. And in that race, I had actually effected a rescue of a lady who was not doing so well. And I'd really, really helped her up a jebel. I'd, I'd taken a bag up top of this jebel that we were climbing and I'd, I'd left her there. She was like hyperventilating. She did pull out and I'd run on ahead and I'd fetch doctors back to her. And in recognition of that, kind of the race said, look, if you want to come back next year, we'll, we'll let you have a place. And that was what I intended to do, to go back in 2013 and hit this race hard, all guns blazing for the animals. But um, something in the meantime happened. The same friend that suggested I did that said, look, um, why don't you, if you really, because it wasn't, still wasn't getting what I wanted to get for the veganism. People were very interested in the mystique of desert running, but not so much in the reason behind I was actually doing it. And I, I had a tough time out there because this is before there were so many synthetic like sleeping bags you could buy. My my sleeping bag weighed over a kilo because it was, you know, it was ex-army once. The only thing I could found that wasn't down filled. There wasn't the expedition food being, you know, for vegans. So I got like this great big bag of stuff you know that weighed an absolute ton I think my, my rucksack weighed probably about 11 kilos that I got to carry for the week and you know in proportion to my actually body weight it was huge so I, I did have a tough time out there but Paul my friend said why don't you do the polar marathons why don't you do the north pole marathon and the antarctic marathon and you know I kind of thought yeah but I didn't believe there was a marathon actually at the North Pole. That would just seem stupid. I, I thought there'd be a marathon somewhere in kind of northern Norway where there was a lot of snow. Right, and right. And it might be about like 10K. And then we'd all say, oh, well, you know, it was it was 10K, but it felt like a marathon because it was like really cold. Uh, but I looked into it, sure enough, there was a marathon at the North Pole. And I kind of figured, okay, this has got to, I mean, crikey, I've tried everything. If you're coming out the cold and you say, blimey, it's cold out there, it feels like the North Pole. So, and if you, if you, if you go for a run and you have a bad one, you say, flipping out, that felt like a marathon. So put the two together. If I could complete this marathon at the North Pole, then surely to goodness, people have got to believe that as a vegan, you can do anything. I've done it fast. I've done it hot. I've done it high. And now I'm going to do it freezing cold. What more do you need? I didn't know if I'd be able to actually do 
I didn't know I'd be able to run on ice or run on snow because, as I said, my knee is very unstable and I, I can dislocate it very easily. And and to to be clear for folks to know, you don't you don't actually have a kneecap on that knee. Yeah, no, yeah, the kneecap removed. So it's um it is very very you know it it, it kind of I can I have to be very very careful w- with my running and that's why I stuck basically to road running to start with. So I'd got no feel for what what I'd be able to do out there. To win the race, to break the course record, to podium with the best men, that was way above my expectations, really, really was. But at that point, some of the guys who were more into this extreme running and into kind of ultra events and kind of the the more off-the-wall events said, look, Fiona, you're obviously a really good runner and you're really, really – there's a world record at stake here. If you were to go and just – go do a marathon on every continent you're entered in the antarctic ice marathon at the end of the year if you could just do that do all these races together uh you'd you'd break a world record and i kind of thought a world record a vegan runner breaking a world record for the animals that's got to be worth doing surely that's got to be worth doing so i came back from the north pole high as a kite you know rose tinted spectacles on and then i kind of thought but hang on a minute i'm not going to be able to do this i'm not going to be able to afford to do this um and i kind of put it on a back burner for a very very long time and then it was kind of getting too late to literally cram a marathon in on every continent in the space of time i'd got but it was bugging me. I thought, you know, but a world record, Guinness world record for the animals. In the end, my mum and dad, who literally had very little left after they've given everything over the years to help me achieve my goals, which was helping animals. Mum said, look, we'll, we'll remortgage the cottage uh, that they lived in and you go and do this if you think you can do it for the animals. So then it was full steam ahead um, to actually go and try and run a marathon on every continent in the space of time I'd got left, which was literally a couple of months. And your and your parents refinanced their house. Yeah, they were this. willing to do that. Yeah. Yeah. I did get a sponsor um to help me, but at that point it was uh literally mum had yeah, got she literally done, done the deed. <laughs> if you get my drift. I mean they got nothing else. I mean she did she hadn't even got an engagement ring. But anyway, I got sponsorship as well. And so I went off then. But I realized that it was going to be really, really tough to prove that it was me running all these events to to Guinness. And they said, look, you've got to have a runner accompanying you or photographs of you at every mile marker for us to validate the fact that it's you doing it. So I said, okay, that's going to be a problem. Um, How about if I win the races or place in the races, then, you know, the race are going to do the authenticating I'm going, to, I'm going to be standing there with a prize or a trophy. They're going to know I've run or won these races. And they said, okay, that that works if you can do that. So now I'm left with the challenge of not only just got to go and complete these races, I've got to kind of win them or podium in them so that the race is willing to authenticate for Guinness that it was me on the start lines. And I remember one story when I got to do the race in Australia. I kind of went to Australia, podiumed in the marathon, and returned to the UK in less than 96 hours, including all the flights and the tra- travelling i got to do. And I, I remember r- arriving in Adelaide, and I'm in the arrivals hall, and a guy came over to me because I'm looking a bit lost, and he said, look, are you looking for your baggage? And I said, no, I'm just looking for the exit or, you know, border control or whatever. And he said, but haven't you got any luggage? Because he come off that flight. I said, no, got no luggage, just got this handbag. 
And he kind of looked at me a bit curiously. He said, you know, what's your purpose here? And I, I, he kind of said, I said, well, he said, because you're only, you know, you, are you, are you, you know, come to see family or, you know, what, what's the reason you've been here? And I kind of looked at him, I think, oh, dear, it looks a bit suspicious, this is. I said, well, I'm only here till tomorrow night. And he kind of went, what? I, I said, but don't worry, don't worry. I, I've got a good reason for being here. I'm running a marathon in the morning. And he said, are you crazy? <laughs> and I thought, probably, yeah, I probably am crazy. Actually. You are. You definitely are, For yeah. the first 13 miles of that horrendous race, I just felt dreadful. I literally dropped off the plane and the next morning, the race started relatively early. It started at seven o'clock. I just felt awful. But that's usually how I start my runs. I'm usually stronger as the race goes on. So then I think I was in about fifth or sixth place in that marathon for the first half. And then I, I can like pick the pace and start picking off runners. So I, I did what I needed to do. I placed in the race, got on the plane, and came home. I don't think I even had time to have jet lag. It was just literally when he said to me, so you've literally come to Australia from the UK on a day trip. I said, well, if you put it like that, yeah. <laughs> and it was literally, I recovered quickly. That's the beauty of, of, of the um, plant-based diet. I think that the recovery rate, looking back on it, it, that I've had to be able to keep piling in the sessions week in, week out has been my strong point. It's definitely not a flamboyant talent for running. It's just an ability to put in the, uh, you know, outlandish amount of miles you need to be able to do to be successful in long distance events. And that's probably where my strength's been. Also, absolutely, I am driven with the reason that I'm out there. If if one person can see my vest and think, hey, I wouldn't have thought that would be possible. If I can change one person's mind, then it's all been worth it. Do you have any stories to share about that specifically, where you did change someone's perspective and uh, made it worth it for you? Yeah, I mean, I get lots of people writing to me from around the world. But one particular thing was when I was doing the world records, I I went to Omsk to run a marathon. They they have a, a bronze standard marathon in Omsk. It's the biggest race in Russia. It qualifies as an Asian marathon. So it was kind of the nearest one I could do. And a couple of funny stories there, actually. Obviously, I was considered a, a, a guest and, a, you know, an elite runner in that race. And for the other elites, the well, Kenyans and Ethiopians, they uh, laid on a lunch the day before the race, you know, for press and kind of media. And one of the Kenyan coaches said to me, are you coming to the lunch? And I said, uh, no, I'm not, actually. I don't, uh, I don't eat lunch. He said, oh, really? And I thought, oh, I'm going to look a right idiot here because I'm not very good. On, I, I don't focus heavily on nutrition. I, I'll talk, talk about my diet. I don't, I don't focus heavily on what I eat. I always say that I'm very blessed to have enough food. I don't have to stress about where the next meal's coming from. I eat my food with the love that my mum prepares it. So I, I'm not, I've got 400 plus mouths to feed at the sanctuary. Mine is very often the one I think about last. And so the, the Kenyan guy said to me, Oh, why is that? I said, well, truthfully, and I've got to be truthful because I'm going to, you get yourself, tie yourself in knots if you start telling fibs just to make yourself look good. I said, um, I only eat one meal a day. And he looked at me and he said, um, ah, the warrior diet. And I kind of looked at him and went, 
Uh, yes, yeah, yeah, oh yeah, the warrior diet, that's the one for me. And he said, oh, a lot of Kenyans do that, a lot of the Kenyan runners do that, just one meal a day, rest your body, intermittent fasting. Oh yes, I'm all into that. Literally, it's just what suits me, I lead a very, very busy day, and it just seems a waste of time to have to keep stopping for food, so I just stop once and eat food in the evening. And so, anyway, we're back to ones, and at this SES conference, Somebody stood up and she introduced herself. She was a journalist and she said, I'm so grateful for you to come to Russia and run this race. I'm so grateful uh, because uh, there is my family are here with me. I'll be running tomorrow, she said. And um, they simply will not believe that I, I, I want to be vegan. They won't believe it's possible. And to see you on this start line means so much to so many people in our country that you can do this. That meant a lot to me, actually, to be able to kind of put this message out there to people that are not necessarily exposed to it and to do it well, relatively well for them so that they can use that information positively for the animals and for what they their path in life meant, meant meant an enormous amount to me and I do I've had lots of stories along the way of people saying thank you for doing this for the animals because by you know by you showing that word to friends family peer groups it proves that you know I'm not going to be ill or I'm not going to be you know deficient in anything I mean I remember another race that I'd, I'd gone to win I mean I had gone to win it I'd gone to break a course record I'd gone for all those reasons but I mean you don't turn up and say oh I'm here to win and I'm here to break course records. You don't do that. Obviously, that's tempting fate. In a marathon or in a long-distance event, you know that there's a million things that can go wrong. And I'm always very, very aware of that. But I remember when I was out on the course, my mom who travelled with me was waiting for me. And there were, the prize-giving people were there. There was a mayoress and, you know, some race officials. And my mum was kind of talking to one of them. And it, she said, I'm waiting for my daughter. And this was back in 2007. So uh, there weren't so many kind of ladies running marathons, you know, and, and the guy said, well, you know, what time is she hoping to run? And my mum didn't say. So he said, well, you know, what, you know, what, what's she here for? She couldn't say she's here to win it. But I did win it and I did break the course record and I did get up there with the men at the finish line. And, and when I was being presented with my trophy, the lady did say to me, the mayoress said to me, she said, goodness gracious me, she said, my daughter has been wanting to go vegetarian, uh, possibly vegan. And she's been talking about this for a long time. And I've absolutely forbidden it because I, I feel that it will, it will be detrimental to her health moving forward. The girl was 14 and she said, now, having seen you do what you've just done, destroy a field in that race, she said, I'm, 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 I'm completely cool with it. I'm, I'm completely happy for her to do it. That, they're the moments that I have run for. They're the moments that when it's 18 miles in a race and you're just hoping and praying you haven't gone off too fast, that's what's driven me on. When it's really, really, you're in dark places and you, you just hope that you know, this is not going to explode and hit the wall. That's what's driven me through that wall, if you like, um, because I, I, I've just wanted to change people's opinions in a kind of positive, peaceful, proactive and almost polite way to say, I'm here, I've done it. I'm just, I'm, I'm not trying to shout at you or scream at you. I realise that you probably coming from different backgrounds, different ethical stances, but I have done it because, you know, I can't, I, I, I want to provide the proof that it can be done 
the facts there, you go away and work with those facts in whichever way you want to. But I just want to be able to say it can be done if you so wish. Do you find that perspective and that method to be more effective than other people maybe do standing for causes in more combative ways? Yeah, I mean, for me personally, and that's all about individuality. I mean, I'm not a naturally aggressive person. I'm not a naturally, I'm not actually a naturally particularly, believe it or not, chatty person. I'm quite an introvert. And I spend most of my time alone with the animals, a big thinker, not a big talker necessarily. And yeah, for me, I, I have to do things like that. I have to kind of lead by example and say, you know, I've done it. You too could possibly consider this and then be that crutch for people if, if they 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 feel that they can't or there's a problem or a challenge just literally be able to kind of articulate to them in a in a visual way that, that I, I I have achieved what I've achieved so draw your own conclusions but it can be done it's not for me to be aggression because I think for, it's just a personal opinion but aggression tends to give back aggression and and I don't want to make people feel that they've got to defend themselves. I want to be kind of more positive than negative towards other individuals. And now is that is that how you actually feel or is that how you're just trying to you, you find that to be more effective or do, do you want to yell and scream at people or is it more that you don't even want to be that way internally? Um, I think internally, I don't want that in my life. I don't. I don't want aggression in my life because I think it eats away at you, uh, gnaws away at you, and if you let it, yes, sometimes I can go through very dark patches, and literally, you want to climb up Nelson's column and just shout, "Why can't you all just see what I can see?" Obviously, but I'm old enough and wise enough to know that people are different and they're always going to be different and they're always going to have different opinions and they're always going to have trig different triggers and reactions. And so obviously running a sanctuary, I want there to be peace here. And I'm the kind of main provider of care here. I, I just want it to be a peaceful place for both myself and the animals because, yeah, if I, I suppose I'm going to get my adrenaline rush through my running. Other people might get their adrenaline rush through hyping up, you know, the conversation, cranking it up. Not me. I, I get my, all I need, my buzz, if you like, through running. Running is my kind of uh, therapy, both mentally and physically. So I, I, I don't kind of want to be that. I don't want it in my life. Do any of the animals run with you? No. No, I don't take the animals out with me. I mean, I suppose. Or do you run in the fields with them? Sometimes I run in the fields. They just look <laughs> at me like I'm I'm kind of weird. But yeah, they will chase me, and they're a lot quicker than me. I can assure you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I I tend the, the the sanctuary and and the field space is for their space. I'm just very lucky to be able to share it with them. That's their space. You said that this was all one big plan. You're running, of course. You 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 have some natural gifted abilities here. You have some unnatural things too, like missing a kneecap. You realize this was great to market your sanctuary and to talk about it and to promote veganism. Do you feel your choice, I guess, in promotion has paid off? Do you feel like this is, I've made the right decision? Or do you look at anyone else and say, that's actually another great way to do it? Have you ever thought about other ways that you would want to promote this lifestyle? Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that help make this show possible. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. 
For me, I've done it the only way I could. And uh, basically in context of the time, you know, social media influencers now, they've got that at their fingertips. I didn't have that at the time. Literally, I had to work with the mainstream media. And because, as I said, I had to do something kind of positive, something relative at the time, something that people could relate to. That was marathon running and the event. I don't look back with regrets, particularly. I, I look forward. I'm happy that this is what I can do to raise awareness. I mean, obviously now there are a lot more plant-based vegan athletes coming out there. So now there's a kind of, um, the caveat is, yeah, but what are you going to be like in 10 years? You've not been vegan that long. Well, I'm kind of now able to be that role model. Well, I've been vegan like half a century and I'm still doing it. I mean, on Christmas Eve, I'm running 52 miles through the night to raise funds for the um, animals at the sanctuary and to also make people aware and possibly think at this time when families gather and there's kind of so-called peace on earth, if you like, or certainly peace on earth is being promoted, that it's 52 weeks a year. We need to hold these kind thoughts in our hearts to both human and non-human animals. So, you know, to be able to just decide to run 52 miles through the night on Christmas Eve after a day at the sanctuary and you know, obviously I've got to be able to do the work the next day on Christmas Day, that's a pretty big positive and a pretty big kind of accreditation for plants and what they can provide you with. I'm doing a race in the Sahara Desert in February. I'm going back to Marathon de Sable in uh, April, hopefully. So yeah, I still think that, you know, there's a lot of validity in what I do and showing what I can continue to do long term. Tell us about the experience of a film being produced about this, Running for Good, major film, major director, narrator, what was that experience and, and did that feel like a culmination of all this effort over the years? Yeah, I mean, to be honest with you, it felt like surreal. And I thought actually when I received the email from Keegan, it, it was some sort of somebody playing a prank um, because he actually <laughs> said, you know, I, I want to, I, you know, I want to make, it made, you know, what the hell, it made conspiracy. And he said, now I want to make a film about the positivity of veganism and you tick all the boxes. And it was like, whoa, you know, but I, I couldn't see anything. Spe- I can't actually see anything special about the way I live my life. I mean, people say, Fiona, you do realize it's kind of extraordinary to be able to get up at 3.30 every morning and just shift out and look after all the animals and literally go running for like two hours every day. You do, And it doesn't because it's my reality. It's just the world I inhabit. So there's nothing special about me. And I couldn't see why Keegan would want to to. To, to make a film it was surreal it was absolutely bizarre that you'd have a camera following you around and what is just very mundane or very normal to me is kind of extraordinary to other people um i'm, I'm not a, a person that particularly wants i've never wanted my name or me particularly to be out there and i still don't i just want the concept of veganism to be out there and i remember once that i was contacted by an animal rights group in Sweden and they wanted a picture of me at the London Marathon I was running on the mile and I was completely alone so I was obviously out front of the race or in the top handful of runners in the race and they said we just want that vegan runner image we we can't put your name on the poster it's just for the image and I said that's all I want I don't want my name I don't care it's not for me that I'm doing this it's for the animals and for the principle of veganism and that kind of ethical stance um so it it was uh weird um I, in fact i didn't realize but keegan kept writing to me with like 
snippets of the film uh, to look at. And I couldn't bear to look at myself. I mean, who the heck wants to look at the cells on the film? Not me. <laughs> and it was only when I went out to Los Angeles for the film premiere and Rich Roll was there and he came over to me and, you know, I... I mean, Rich and I, you know, I mean, Rich is so professional and so everything he does is, you know, and I'm not, let's put it like that. I've got little Percy Bear and I'm just not a media type person. And he said, oh, you know, because Rich obviously narrates the film. And he said, you know, you must be really proud of it. You know, it looks great. You know, and I said, don't know, I haven't seen it. And he just looked at me and said, you haven't seen the film that you're in. I, no, I, I said, I, I don't want to look at myself on a small screen, but the thought of looking at myself on a big screen, like we're in this, this auditorium, was just horrendous to me. And I had planned to kind of hide at the back of the theatre and like cover my eyes and then at the end, you know, just like look up. And he said, no, you've got to come down. You've got to sit next to me and you've got to watch the film. And I just, oh no, what, what is it going to look like? And then I'm kind of trying to collect myself and saying, look, be calm. You've got Keegan, this great director and filmmaker. You're in the desert. You've got all the gear on. How bad can this actually be? And then I looked at myself limping along like some little Quasimodo figure with my pack on. And I thought, oh, no, there's only me can make myself look this bad <laughs> when I'm running. And um, yeah, so I, it was it was a surreal kind of process filmmaking something I don't really understand I don't really understand the media I don't everything I do is very non-professional I have a little Patreon page that people are kindly support for the animals and um, I'm just one take Fiona I just do one cut don't edit don't do anything just make my little videos and then move on to the next thing I think that's probably my my greatest strength within running actually because I have um, I don't overthink things probably just as well because I just wouldn't dare have gone to the North Pole or to a desert and, and run across it if I'd have actually thought about it too much. And I remember to back that up in, in the Marathon de Sable, when they've stripped you of all your kind of Sibby Street things, you've got your little pack and what you're going to need for the week. And you're sitting trembling the night before in the tent and they've given you a road book for the week. All you can hear from most of the other tents is people going, oh my Lord, what? Have we, oh, look at Wednesday. Oh, look at the long stage. Oh, look at that treble. And I'm just sitting there with my little road book or you know and I'm not I'm not even looking at it and somebody said to me are you, aren't you going to read the road book I said look what can I do about it I can't go back and do a bit more training now it's race starts tomorrow I said I'll look at each stage on the day of the stage but I'm just going to waste energy fretting about it I can't do anything about it so it's going to have negative impact to be sitting here on Saturday night worrying about what's going to happen on Thursday if I'm lucky enough to get there so that's pretty much the kind of attitude I have towards everything and it's got me through thus far so it, it can't can't be all bad unbelievable I, I mean the approach is so unique I mean you're so unique in so many ways I know you don't view yourself that way but uh just not worrying about those stats and still winning and still breaking these records a couple more questions I know we're going a little over but this is so stinking fascinating I want to know because you've been talking about it what is a typical day at the sanctuary for you? What are the tasks? What does it look like, the times? And, you know, is there some, I imagine there's a routine. 
Yeah, there is a basic structural routine. I mean, at Sanctuary, the core amount of work that always needs doing, and generally speaking, throughout the week, in the weekdays, you've always got something else going on, like deliveries, farriers, vets, maintenance work, all that kind of stuff going on, forage, you know. Uh, so I get up at half past three in the morning. I, I actually find I'm very blessed to be able to do that. Obviously, winter and summer are different. That's pre- pretty much not much before daybreak in the summer, but in the winter, obviously, you've got a lot of dark hours before it actually the day breaks. But I kind of like to get on top of things very early so if there's a problem I want to know about it I want to have seen all the animals make sure they're fed relatively early so that if I do need to call in a bear if I do need help I can get on top of it as most people's working day starts so I'm working away until about probably 10 or 11 o'clock in the morning I don't stop I have one drink before I go outside my tipple is black coffee um I have a drink I go outside and I find it pretty easy to work six seven hours I don't stop I don't have a drink I don't have anything to eat that's just the way I do it then come inside might do some um well at the minute it's it's slightly different because we are giving end of life care to my dad uh, and he's at home um so he's in a hospital bed yeah I mean it's just what it is and uh, so I have to be available to help my mum with the care so we have to turn him every two hours there's a lot of extra stuff that I have to kind of shuffle around for that um then middle of the day-ish I'll go out and I'll probably run two or three hours um come back Quick drink, my mum will have it ready. Very often, don't have a shower or anything like that. Go straight out, put my wellies on and get off out and do my jobs. And they're probably about um, another four hours outside. Um, And I stop round about seven o'clock in the evening. Um, At the moment, people have been kind enough to donate things. So I've had to pick up animal food and, you know, horse rugs. People want to tend to give to you, give to the animals at Christmas and sit down for my meal at anything. It can be anything because obviously if mum needs me to help with dad and, you know, I mean, I can't be too graphic at, you know, the kind of, he's incontinent, obviously, you know, it can change. But I'll probably sit down about eight o'clock for my evening meal and that'll be the first thing I've eaten all day. I do drink, obviously, a lot in the day. I don't mean alcohol. (laughs) But I mean, I drink, you know, like, you know, water or um, a juice drink or or tea and coffee. And that is a typical day in the life of, of... Moi. I, I tend to thrive on keeping going. I'm like a little train. I like to keep chugging along. Um, along. I, I very, know what my limitations are. I know what I can do. I've done this literally all my life. This is what I do. This is how I live my life. I choose to be busy. I do not look to, you know, paint myself as somebody. Oh, it's awful. Oh, I've got so much to do. I'm blessed to be able to do it. When I wake up in the morning, I don't naturally throw back the duvet and think, hey, it's 3.30 and I'm going outside. Um, you know, it can be raining. It can be snowing. It can be whatever it is. But I tend to always check back and think, you know, arms and legs all work, heads clear, you know, you're in no pain. You're able to do this. That is the blessing in itself. And Wonderful. I try always when I'm out there, think about the blessing. You know, I still probably run about uh, 80 to 100 miles a week still. And somebody did actually ask me um, earlier on in the week, how many paces do you do a day, Fiona? And I, I'm not, I don't, you know, fixate on these things I, I I broke my watch a few a few months ago and somebody kindly sent me one of these Strava things uh, but I only use it as a watch but I do realize there's a facility on it to look at paces and I realized that day I'd, I'd walked I'd done about I'd not done a particularly long run I'd done about an hour and a half running I'd done 58,000 paces that day and I think I probably do between 55 and 70,000 paces a day around the sanctuary Jeez. and running 
that's a day for me and that's pretty much every day it just it just rolls in this is what I do I I you know I don't have another life apart from running and the animals I don't you know that's weird but I don't spend a lot of time on uh, on the, the social media or anything like that so they're the hours that you can free up to get out there and run and I do Amen. like to go out in nature and run and I don't listen to music when I run or podcast what I tend to do is listen and it sounds all very contrived it's not contrived. I don't mean it to sound like that. I listen to the beauty and the music of nature. I listen to the birds singing, the waves lapping on the beach, my own breathing. And I take time, especially now you're doing slightly slower running, so you need longer on your feet, to, to look up and look around me and think, you know, I'm blessed to do this. I to still be doing it. Whoa, you know, I, you know, the sky. And I, if it's raining or there's ice or there's snow or, you know, it's windy, there, that's what is part of being alive. And, you know, another thing is, I just like to say to people, life is a balance. And a lot of people in the UK seem to think it's bad if anything goes wrong or it's not bad to feel sad. Because if you feel sad, then you can feel happy. If you're cold, then you can get warm. If you're hungry, you can have food. It's life's a balance. You don't make a cake just using one ingredient. You need all those ingredients of emotions in your life to make the person you are so I tend to try and not look at things negatively um it's always got to be a positive spin to it uh and that's what gets me through that's the food of life that's my nutrition I I don't know if I've ever met anybody like you (laughs) or at least talked to him on this show this is unbelievable 3 30 in the morning what time do you go to bed you didn't say that probably about mm, 10 o'clock yeah, so so I mean, don't thrive off a lot of sleep. Three thirty yeah. in the morning. But it's quality sleep. No social media. And when you're gone, do you have help? I, I assume you have to have help. Yeah, yeah, I have help. I mean, I've got I've got a very very good team of people. I mean, obviously, people who deal with me have dealt with me for for many 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 years. Feed merchants, farriers, the people who do the maintenance, the people who do the machine, people who can step in. So yeah, I've I've got help. Um, I like to oversee it. I like to manage it. I like this to be a home for the animals. I like there to be continuity of care. I don't just want it to be a place where, oh, oh you know, that horse is in stable number 32. I like to know them in, you know, everything, every, as individuals, I like to really, this is like one big family environment. And people, when they do come here, uh, for instance, when my vet first came here, he said, you can smell, you can sense the peace here. They all live together very in very, very secure environment in terms of the fact they know the routine here. I can't communicate with the animals verbally, but in, in terms of emotionally, I think I can. The best way when you're introducing a new animal, especially one that's been abused probably mentally and physically, you can try and calm it all you like. But the ones that already reside here, they're the ones that can kind of comfort them and heal them. And I like to be able to think that I'm privileged to be able to be a part of that. I'm the overseer, I'm the caregiver, I'm the manager, I'm the kind of person that can deliver them what they need to be able to live as natural and free environment as they can within the confines of obviously the restrictions that I have to adhere to, which are things like, you know, obviously, um, legislation with regard to keeping certain of the animals and the environment of keeping them confined within a space, although it'd be a big space, they have to, you know, stay within 
the confines of the sanctuary. And I, I like them to have as near to natural emotions and return them back to themselves and each other as I can. So I do like the horses to behave like horses, not wild, but free. Um, you know, the young and the old live together, the big and the small, male and female. Obviously, I can't allow them to breed because that's, you know, that's not really ethical as a sanctuary. But other than that, I like them to be able to be who they are, not who I need them to be for me to be able to manage them, if you get my drift. And I've got some enormous animals here. I've got a huge herd of highland cattle, the ones with the great big horns. I've got, you know, know, a, a big variation of animals and they live peacefully together. And I think that we could learn so much from animals and we've just had a cold spat, uh, spat of weather you know it's been probably not cold for some people who are listening but you know probably minus eight you know and I'm you know cold and you know I have to wear a lot of layers I don't work in gloves so your hands get very cold and you know and you look at the animals and you think they cope they know how to forage they know how to break ice they know how to do all these things we don't as humans and yet we treat them as we do very often you know exploit them and abuse them and yet we could learn so much for them if we just learn to speak their language and that's what I I hope I've achieved some way to go in towards speaking their language understanding them Fiona, I've got, I know you're, you're busy you're a busy person so I don't want to keep you too much longer but I I, I you're so interesting. There's so much more I want to know. I'm going to narrow it down to two last quick things. With You said your father is aging, your mother as well, of course. They've been a part of this story for so long. They've done so much, mortgaged their house, helped you get the land. Being 30 years into this journey and having discovered the running and the ability to use that along the way, what would you say your parents, what would your parents say about you? I think that mum feels guilty for ever having me, to be quite honest with you, because she, in her life, her way of looking at things, she sees someone who works full on 24 hours a day, very often for what no tangible reward in terms of physical reward. I know that I might be changing, I might be changing someone's opinion of veganism or the way they relate to animals. So that is enough for me. But I think to a lot of people who do see the way I work and the way I push myself, um, I remember I was once on my treadmill and I was really going for it with my speed work. And I'd got a builder in at the time, a guy called Colin, and he said, you know what, I wouldn't want to see anyone I loved push themselves that hard. And I think sometimes she does feel that I have been blessed but I've been cursed with this absolute desire and drivenness that I just don't turn off um dad yeah I mean at the moment now he's he's past knowing what's going on unfortunately but he's always been there always supported me I don't think he's ever really got it he's he's kind of got the running because he, he likes sport but it, it's I'm not your average person. I've not taken an average path in life. And sometimes to walk this narrow path that I've walked when it would have been so much easier to just turn off and, 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 you know, take an easier option. I never take the easy option with anything I do, whether it be the running or the sanctuary or anything, because I do believe that life is short. You never know when it's going to end. And to make, to be able to make a difference, a positive difference in life is, is an absolute 
gift that a lot of people um, will never receive. They'll never understand that. Um, and that makes me sad um, because I know that the rewards I've got for doing what I've done, and I don't regret any of it because I hope that I've been able to change people's opinions and change their life and animals' lives for the better. Last question. What is next for you? I know that there's always probably stuff in the works. What is the next major goal you have for yourself or for the sanctuary? Or if there's not one, there's not one, but is what's on the horizon? Well, obviously, with the current economic climate and, and the instability over the last three years, the main goal of the sanctuary is just to keep going. Obviously, it's very, very expensive to keep this many animals in, you know, food and forage, everything that they need. So focusing on just keeping going, keeping being positive and just being able to keep upbeat about everything. Obviously being able to run. If I never can get to another race again through circumstances or whatever, always... I think it's to me now at the moment, you can fixate on the future a bit too much and take for granted the present. So it's learning to live and enjoy every moment and realize always how blessed I am to have every precious second that I can get out there, whether it be running or whether it be looking after the animals and achieve essentially small goals. I mean, you know, I think a lot of people think life is going to be perfect. It's not going to be perfect. But if you can learn to identify the perfect moments within life, then that's going to be about as good as you get. And those perfect moments might be something as simple as just like looking up and seeing one one of the horses, I don't know, running in the fields or the sun on your own face or just little things that you can identify as being wonderful, wonderful things that a lot of people are so kind of tunnel vision in kind of a, a very materialistic world that they live in and the pressure's always on and they're always looking at what other people are doing and trying to live up to what other people are doing. Learn to know yourself. And that I suppose that is my goal, to carry on learning about myself and putting it to good use. Well, Fiona, I, I uh very much inspired by this conversation. <laughs> I'm kind of blown away. I know you've probably heard that a thousand times, but uh, I really appreciate you spending, uh, going over a little bit. I know we've both heard a couple, <laughs> we've gotten phone calls and all kinds of stuff during this, but um, thank you so much. And thanks for what you're doing and just living life so, so right, so purely, so uh, enthusiastically that the rest of us can be inspired by Thank you. Oh, thank you. Thanks for allowing me to talk. And, you know, thanks to everyone out there for listening. First of all, thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to this show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventure sports podcast. Link is in the show notes. And also, if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show, we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure. So if you know someone, please reach out. Email us at info at adventuresportspodcast.com. And until then, get out there and have some fun. you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? 
I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. And it works everywhere I write. Summarizing a doc only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.